Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Samar uh, Jarrah. Uh, my co-host is uh, not in the studio today. He is uh, traveling, but I'm going to be talking to a lawyer and professor, Mariam Jamshidi. Uh, she's an associate professor at the University of Colorado Law, uh, Law School. There are so many things to talk about, but uh, let me just begin uh, with uh, some uh, music Uh, from uh, Iraq, actually. And uh, hopefully we're going to be right back very soon. to True Talk. We have spoken uh, with uh, Professor Mariam Jamshidi when she was uh, teaching, I think, in Florida, and it also was during the um, uh, Gaza war, and today we talk about her, uh, uh, with her, uh, but uh, now uh, she has moved uh, to Colorado, uh, very cold there. Uh, Good morning, Mariam. Good to have you on True Talk again. Thank you. It's good to be to be back. As you said, I, I we've spoken before. Yes, uh, so we've spoken it's before. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And unfortunately, that uh, we were uh, also talking about issues related uh, to Gaza and the war on Gaza, and now we have another war on Gaza, and. Yeah. Um, Uh, But really, uh, a few weeks ago, just before the war, there was something very, very disturbing to me, at least disturbing as somebody who taught uh, at a university before, not anymore. And so uh, the students from all walks of life have different uh, groups and clubs. So I was disturbed when I read your very interesting article. Uh, It's a heavy article to read and has so many references that one can go to. And it's called Students 
Italians for justice in Palestine, governors for authoritarianism in Florida. And it seems that uh, Governor uh, DeSantis is bent on preventing Palestinian uh, groups and Palestinian um, uh, students for justice for Palestine from uh, having their clubs in the universities. So can you give us a background, uh, Mariam, about this issue? And how did you end up writing about it? Sure. So um, so this uh, incident actually happened after after the start of the, the war on October 7th. Um, in late October, the state of Florida issued a letter um, directed at Florida chapters of the Students for Justice in Palestine organization. Um, this is uh, these are various. There are various chapters uh, affiliated with the um, Students for Justice in, in Palestine national organization. I believe about two hundred chapters across North America, and this letter specifically, obviously, targeted the ones in Florida and banned them from Florida state universities. There are, in fact, only two. Um, student for justice, students for justice in Palestine organizations on Florida State Universities. One of them is at the University of Florida, where I was teaching until this summer. And the grounds for the ban uh, are are quite concerning and problematic. Uh, what Florida is accusing uh, these chapters of is effectively providing what is called material support to a terrorist organization, the terrorist organization in this case being Hamas. So the underlying allegation is that the National Students for Justice in Palestine organization, uh, which, by the way, is separate from the various chapters, there's no indication that there is any kind of um, strong relationship between the national organizing branch of Students for Justice in Palestine and the various chapters across the country. But in any case, the allegations focus on the national organizing branch and point to uh, a toolkit that that national organizing branch put out a few days after the war. The toolkit was about organizing a day of protest in solidarity with Palestinians across historic Palestine. The way Florida describes it, though, the toolkit serves as evidence that the national organizing branch of SJP is, in fact, aligned with and working with Hamas, that somehow their decision to organize these protests was a response to a call from Hamas to uh, to demonstrate um, and engage in protest activity um, with respect to what was happening in Gaza. There's no evidence for that in the toolkit. There's no evidence that was otherwise presented by uh, the the floor by Florida in its letter um, establishing any connection between national SJP and Hamas. But nevertheless, on this very thin, thin basis, evidentiary basis, Florida shut down or attempted to shut down the chapters at state universities. Um, I mean, so, you know, is there any legal basis to this? So the evidentiary basis is incredibly thin, mm -hmm. but legally as well, um, this is, you know, quite clearly a violation of the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects independent advocacy. You can advocate as an independent individual um, for basically whatever you want, as long as you're not inciting people to violence. You know, that's that's the most clear limitation. You have 
the right under the First Amendment as an individual or a group inside this country to advocate for whatever you want. And even with respect to this concept of material support, which is a very broad concept that was created in the 1990s and, you know, has been used in a lot of very problematic ways and ways that would seem to violate the First Amendment, there are still limits to what material support can prohibit. And it doesn't reach the kind of independent advocacy that the national SJPs, the chapter SJPs in Florida have been engaging in. So from a legal standpoint, the ban also seems to hold no water. But as you mentioned, you know, this is very clearly meant to be an attack on pro-Palestine organizing and advocacy, even if the ban ends up being struck down. And it likely will be. And it's the ACLU has already brought a case challenging Mm -hmm. the ban um, in Florida on First Amendment grounds. Even if it's struck down, The fact that the ban was put in place in the first place, that these allegations have been raised against these groups, creates a massive chilling effect um, when it comes to Palestine-related advocacy in the state of Florida and arguably across the country. Okay, when you say uh, material support, uh, what do you mean? You mean that they are funneling, uh, the accusation is that they are actually funneling money to support the military arm of uh, Hamas or... Or it's vague, or uh, now it's becoming like if I uh, if I take a table at the university and put some hummus and tabula and ma'luba and say, okay, I'm um, against what's happening to the Palestinians in Gaza, that would be some sort of a support. So material support is a very, very broad term. It covers a host of activities and is not limited to money or fundraising. Mm-hmm. You could provide material support by giving someone who you know to be a designated terrorist uh, a ride to the airport. You can violate material support by giving that person food. You can violate material support by, you know, otherwise coordinating with that person to engage in in various kinds of what, what would otherwise be First Amendment protected advocacy. The coordination with them uh, causes that advocacy to lose the protections of the First Amendment. So the material support concept itself is 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 quite expansive in terms of what it covers and if there was in fact coordination act an actual effort between national sjp and hamas to organize protests in the united states uh against what israel is doing in gaza that the the existence of that coordination could make those protests a form of material support that are that's prohibited but There is absolutely no evidence in any way, shape, or form that Florida has presented or that otherwise exists in the public domain um, that there's ever been any coordination between this organization that has exclusively focused on on on-campus student organizing for quite a long time and HEMAS. There's just no evidence of that. So if there was, this would be a different situation, but there there simply isn't. Um, I don't know how they can prove any uh, any any of that, but uh, let me just remind our listeners that we are uh, True Talk, and I'm talking to uh, Mariam Jamshidi, who is associate professor at the University of Colorado Law School, and we are talking about the attempts by the governor of Florida to criminalize uh, pro uh, Palestine uh, groups. You you have you were teaching, you said at the university in uh, Florida. Uh, 
and there was a chapter. Did you ever see their work? Like, what do they do? What do they advocate? Uh, one time, I think I was invited uh, at USF to attend the lecture Uh, by um, some author that we had on uh, the radio show before. But, I mean, what is it that they do that is scaring uh, DeSantis uh, to this level? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Why, why is uh, Governor DeSantis so worried about the activities of these um, student chapters? I mean, you know, I was at UF for four years uh, before I left. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have much direct interaction with the SJP chapter at UF, but, you know, but I know generally speaking, these student chapters um, across the country are focused on the on-campus advocacy that relates to Palestine. So bringing more awareness to what is happening inside historic Palestine, inside the ter territories that are occupied and otherwise, you know, organizing speakers, holding protests, you know, specific, particularly when there's um, violence going on, which is unfortunately a daily occurrence, but no when there's spectacular violence happening, you know, these groups will hold protests, they'll table, they'll put up posters, you know, they'll hold events, you know, what, any, honestly, any student group does, right, that's committed to whatever issue they're committed to. SJPs are no different. The, what makes them SJPs is that their focus is on Palestine, right? That is the subject matter that they are interested in, uh, in advocating on behalf of. But I think your question is really more about, you know, less about what are they doing and, and, and more about why, what's the, the root of this fear? And mm -hmm. it's not just limited to Florida, right? We see this happening across the country right now with respect to student organizing on campuses on uh, with respect to what's happening in Gaza. There is a massive amount of fear and intimidation and censorship um, and punishment that's being meted out to members of SJPs, to members of Jewish Voice for Peace chapters um, at various colleges these organizations are being punished and shut down and ostracized for engaging in peaceful advocacy. I have yet to see any credible allegation that any of these organizations or their members have engaged in any kind of violence. They're all engaged in peaceful on-campus activism. But I think the fact that it is so pervasive, this activism has become, you know, it's grown over the years But in this moment, people across the country are finally seeing it and seeing how vibrant and powerful these chapters are, how passionate students are for this issue, how dedicated they are to pushing back against the mainstream narrative uh, as to what's happening inside of Palestine. And it is, uh, it's shaking up and disturbing a lot of very powerful groups and powerful organizations and powerful politicians who are invested in, in that mainstream narrative. The fact that the students have been quote-unquote lost to the cause of supporting Israel, I think, really scares a lot of these people. And so they are reacting in, in ways that we, you know, that are oftentimes the ways powerful people react, which is deploying The, the tools of state power, the tools of corporate power to try and shut down this activism because it is so strong, because it is so pervasive, and because it is relentless. These students, despite all the intimidation, are not backing down. If anything, their protests 
their advocacy is just getting stronger and more committed as a result of the backlash that they're receiving. So in some sense, I sort of understand the fear Mm -hmm. um, that people like DeSantis have because, you know, this suggests a very large, young part of the population is not on board with a narrative that people like him have been promoting for a very long time in part to, to promote their own political interests and ambitions. So it is it is a threat to DeSantis. It is a threat to a lot of people like DeSantis uh, because it is uh, presenting, it is rejecting um, their narrative and presenting one that is diametrically opposed to it. But aren't they afraid that of, if you don't allow young people, uh, young vibrant people to express uh, their opinion about politics, whether local or international, Uh, that this mm-hmm. might drive some of them to more extremist thinking um, mm-hmm. or like how are they going to vent? I mean, if, the, if at the end of mm-hmm. the day they're going to walk in the street and chant and carry flags and then go have coffee right. or eat a bagel and go home. Plus, there are Jewish organizations and Jewish right. uh, organizations in the universities. Are they going to incriminate mm-hmm. them and tell mm-hmm. Jews you are anti-Semitic too? Yeah, I mean... You know, I don't know, uh, you know, to what extent uh, you're aware of this, but, you know, there was a, a House resolution that mm-hmm. was passed a few days ago um, that, you know, explicitly defined anti-Semitism as, as including criticisms of Israel. And there were several Jewish members of Congress who spoke out against that resolution. And in doing so, They pointed out that there is a long and vibrant history of anti-Zionist thinking amongst the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And so that resolution effectively pars those Jews as anti-Semites. This is, you know, at the heart of, you know, the concern with these sorts of ex- expansion, expansive notions of anti-Semitism that we also see Um, really coming to the fore in the last few weeks as a way of delegitimizing a variety of different efforts, including student protests. So, you know, is it, does it make a lot of sense, you know, to equate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism um, and then leverage those accusations against Jews who are uh, criticizing Israel? I mean, certainly not from my perspective, But again, if your objective is fundamentally to protect, you know, the sort of state of Israel uh, narratives uh, that, you know, suggest that Israel is, you know, the 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 homeland and and one in the same with the Jewish community across across the world. If that's your objective, if your objective is, is fundamentally to protect Israel as opposed to the Jewish community globally, then it does make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It does make a lot of sense to equate anti-Semitism with criticisms of Israel. But, you know, historically, that has not been what anti-Semitism has meant. And again, it isolates and excludes a large swath of the Jewish community that doesn't believe that, you know, that, that doesn't believe that Israel should be free of criticism simply because of its Jewish character. I mean... The, the other point you raise with respect to, you know, if you can't advocate peacefully, what can you do? Exactly. You This know, is what scares me uh, a lot. Uh, and not necessarily from people who are of Arab descent or Palestinian or Muslim descent. 
mm-hmm. because there are so many yeah. white Christian Americans that are that are extremely supportive of Palestine. And if you are on right. TikTok, you will be shocked right. and amazed how active, how young, and how right. uh, how influential they are. Right. Yeah, there are the, the support on this issue, especially now. It, you know, it's 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 in all sorts of communities. It's not just limited. To Arabs or Muslims or people from the Middle East, it's 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 everyone, and you know, again, what what are so what options would be left, right? If effectively, um, in particular, if anti-Semitism is anti is equated to anti-Zionism, and therefore, if you criticize Israel, you're cr- committing a hate crime, for example, or if you know promotion of the Palestinian cause is tantamount to providing material support. To a terrorist organization, then how do you engage in peaceful advocacy? I mean, that is a great question. Exactly. I don't know how you engage in peaceful advocacy if every avenue of that advocacy is criminalized in some sort of way. You know, I don't know if that necessarily means that people turn to violence, but it certainly does mean that people will likely stop engaging in that advocacy, right? That's the goal. That is, in fact, what they're betting on, that people will just stop, that they'll be too afraid as a result of all of the different criminal prohibitions that their advocacy uh, might trigger, that they'll just decide, you know what, this isn't worth it and we will be quiet. I don't know that violence is the way people are going to respond, you know, to these to these um, efforts to shut down the advocacy. Maybe these these people pursuing these avenues, these strategies are right that people will just stop advocating generally on this issue at all. But I think what will happen is that people will just start going to jail. You know, you'll Mm. just have, you know, you'll have more and more people who are facing serious criminal consequences for, you know, for this kind of activity. I don't I, I don't think it's going to stop. You know, I think we'll just see people paying a really massive price for standing up for what they believe to be right. I am, I'm sure you have uh, watched maybe clips of the hearing at the Congress with the president of uh, Harvard and MIT, but the questions were really uh, some disturbing. For instance, specifically um, trying to incriminate uh, slogans that, sh- that these students um, say, for instance, Intifada. Which is, by the way, in the Arabic language, um, because I used to work for Jordan Television uh, when Uh the first Intifada broke. And uh, Israel TV has a half an hour of Arabic news. And in Jordan, we would have the equivalent of it in Hebrew. So when the Intifada Mm -hmm. started, we didn't know what was that, what to name it, whether in English um, or French or in Hebrew Mm -hmm. Or in Arabic, because all these were uh, the news uh, broadcast from Jordan Television, where I work. And who named it Intifada? The Israeli Arabic News Bulletin. And after a week of using that word, okay, which was translated by them, by their English news, to mm-hmm. uprising, Jordan Television adopted the word and the rest of the world adopted the word. So when they were mm-hmm. asking the president, I think, of Harvard or MIT, they were saying, do you agree or not agree that intifada means the uh, uh, like, like genocide and killing the Jews? I mean, um, this is very dangerous because I have this radio yeah. show. 
So if I say right. what's happening in uh, Gaza is a genocide, so mm -hmm. with time they are going to incriminate because they asked her for the river to the sea and they right. asked her about Antifada and then I think another word, free, free Palestine. So mm -hmm. can legally <laughs> words be incriminated and did... And did this happen before? Because then we're going to ha not have news anywhere on the face of earth. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch the hearings um, in full yet, but um, but I have seen clips here and there. I mean, those hearings are, you know, again, fundamentally aimed at trying to censor and shut down um, the vibrant student activism happening across the country. They are a byproduct of how successful and um, pervasive that advocacy has been. And I would argue that perhaps also, you know, this, this, this hearing is a bit of a distraction, you know. It's meant to sort of make people in this country believe that these student activists are the ones who are engaging in the problematic behavior. They're the ones who are, you know, threatening and making Jewish people unsafe. When in fact, you know, the real crime, the real horror that's happening is what's happening inside of Gaza. It's what's mm -hmm. happening inside of the West Bank. You know, that's where you actually have people dying because of who they are, because of what they represent, people being killed because of their identities. You know, you have people being removed from their homes. You know, these slogans, you know, we all, I mean, I, I don't even want to give it airtime, honestly. Yeah. This notion yeah. of any of these slogans mean anything that in any way, shape or form even reaches the edges of genocide. It's, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous to suggest that, uh, but it's being suggested because the arsenal of weapons that these individuals and groups and politicians have to go after these student advocates um, are not that many, you know? And in fact, the more extreme the allegations against them, you mm -hmm. know, the more these individuals and groups think, ah, the more, the more likely we are to succeed. But unfortunately, the extreme nature of these allegations really underscore their absurdity, you know, that you would actually accuse these students across these various campuses, chanting things like free Palestine, you know, of thereby suggesting that Jews should be eliminated. I mean, it is absolutely groundless. There are no, there's no basis for it. All, all this hearing did was really underscore the absolute ridiculousness of those kinds of accusations. Their hope, again, I think is to distract from what's mm -hmm. actually happening um, in Gaza with full American military and financial and diplomatic support, you know? But, you know, it is, it is uh, a tool that they're trying to use in order to create that distraction. Uh, I know that you have limited time, but I can't let you go without asking you uh, about uh, international law because this is what uh, people in the Arab world and on Twitter and all social media keep saying, you know, this is bogus, this is hoax. All these uh, years that the West kept telling us uh, you you are not uh, able to democratize, you are not able to move to the 21st century, um, you don't have freedom of speech, you don't have free media and you don't follow international law. Hello? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah. Isn't uh, international law being violated, let's say, by the <laughs> U.S. Uh, when it's supporting, um, uh, sending, I mean, it's it's surreal because uh, Samantha Powers was uh, on uh, on Twitter in a military <laughs> fatigue uh, in front of a military cargo uh, airplane or gigantic something. And she's talking about the medicine and the food and the clothing and the tents she's sending <laughs> to Gaza. And just the day before, there were images of the gigantic bombs, the bunker penetrating bombs. And I don't know, these people don't understand or they don't care, but don't they know that maybe, maybe one day international law can be applicable to them and drag them into court? Or it's only, uh, these things are only for uh, like the Sudanese, uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi and God knows, it's only law for uh, uh, the brown people or what? Right. International law for thee, but not for me. I mean, I mean, I mean, a hundred percent what the way in which the United States and other Western governments and first and foremost, Israel um, have trampled on international law um, when it comes to uh, their own actions um, and their own crimes and then held it up as this inviolable, uh, you know, uh, guiding light, this, this, this body of law that, you know, we must adhere to when it comes to the actions of other actors, whether it's Russia or Sudan or Iran is, you know, at the core of why international law is seen as illegitimate by so many people across the world. What is the point of international law if it is only going to be used against the weak or against your enemies and never applies to you? And unfortunately, this moment um, has underscored um, those that that inconsistency and the hypocrisy in which international law, by which international law is deployed or not deployed. I will say, though, that you know, I mean, just to very quickly answer your question, you know, is there any chance that the international criminal court will ever indict an Israeli official for what has happened in in Gaza? Um, or in the West Bank over the course of the last several years. I, I, I would, you know, I would take the bet that no, that's never going to happen. And certainly oh not the United States, um, you know, which has a law on the books um, that effectively gives the president the power to invade The Hague if an, a U.S. official is ever brought to the court for prosecution. Oh, my God. Can that you say sense. can you say that again? I just want to make sure I heard it correctly. Sure. So during the Bush administration, Congress passed a law um, that effectively allows the president to engage in an invasion, in a military invasion of The Hague, which is where the International Criminal Court is based, to uh, free or liberate any U.S. officials that are brought to the dock at the ICC. Oh my God! I can't. So remember. yeah, it, I mean, obviously, you know, would that ever happen? I, 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 I would, I would be very surprised if it ever happened. But it is that is a law that was put on the books not very long ago. Oh God. Um. So there are, you know, you know, all sorts of ways in which we could say, well, why should we even talk about international law at this moment? Because it, it, it is no one's abiding by it. None of the people who are killing Palestinians are abiding by it or think that it applies to them. But at the same time, international law is an incredibly powerful tool mm-hmm. that has been 
and should be mobilized by those of us who want to see what's happening stop. And I think it's part and parcel. I don't think people on the street need international law to tell them what's right and what's wrong. That being said, it's a very powerful argument that is deployed by political movements in this moment, in other moments of mass killing, that this is illegal. You are you are engaging in grave violations of international law over and over and over again, Israel, over and over and over again, the United States, by, by doing what you are doing. And because those states, even though they constantly ignore and undermine international law, the United States and Israel are both very concerned about their public image. They're very concerned about being seen as law-abiding. Israel continues to claim that it abides by international humanitarian law and does not target civilians as international humanitarian law prohibits it from doing. So even though they are arguably the enemies of international law, these states also invoke international law to try and justify what they are doing. And so being able to use the law to counter those uh, unbelievably false arguments is incredibly important and incredibly powerful in this moment. So we shouldn't abandon international mm -hmm. law. It does provide us really with a very important tool for engaging in advocacy. It does not represent the limits of that advocacy. You know, it does not represent the only kinds of messages that we are that we ought to be sending in this moment. There are important moral messages to be sending as well. And international law is also just flawed in many ways when it comes to the actual doctrine. But it, it, it shouldn't be something that's abandoned. OK. And, you know, and I think even though the ICC is unlikely to ever do anything, yeah. we need to put the ICC's feet to the fire and push them to do something again to highlight and underscore what international law demands in this moment. Okay, so you think this is what, for instance, activists should be concentrating on? Because I know so many young people, they say, okay, the Red Cross didn't do its job. Why don't we do a campaign to embarrass the Red Cross? But you, as a lawyer, you are telling me, uh, let's get after the intern, the ICC. Is it, it Which one do you think the, these young people should be concentrating on? If if you want to advise them from somebody who has this background? I, I, you know, I think that those students know exactly what kind of arguments are the most effective and that they're deploying them very well. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that they should embrace yeah. international law themselves. Like, I think, you know, there are a variety of different ways of approaching this issue. But I do think for those of us who are lawyers and are international lawyers, um, we are particularly duty-bound in this moment to explain to the world what international law requires mm -hmm. and how it's being violated to the extent that we are also part of efforts or to try and stop what's happening in Gaza. International law is the tool that those of us who are in this space should be using. But the students, you know, I don't want to tell the students yeah, I know. what to do. Because and I certainly... Yeah. And I certainly also do not in any way, shape or form want to criticize anybody who is themselves criticizing international law in this moment, because there is a lot to criticize. And that criticism is also valid. You know, it's also valid. And it's also important to get those critiques out there. But at the same time, what I'm saying is that there are also ways of productively using international law yeah. 
right now that I don't think should be abandoned, at least by those of us that are working in that area. This is really the final question, but I can't let you go without uh, maybe addressing it. And I think it's important because whenever, for instance, um, on Twitter and social media, we say, look, look at these civilians, poor civilians. Uh, the excuse is that they elected Hamas. And the other excuse is that they are being used as uh, human shields and like blaming the poor dead bodies and victims. I mean, is this applicable to, uh, I mean, intern? Uh, in terms of law or international law or logic, is this applicable to these people that are being killed? I mean, certainly using the argument that these people voted for Hamas as any kind of basis to justify for justifying their killing is absolutely uh, illegal under international law. That's called collective punishment. If you deliberately target civilians, first of all, that's totally illegal under <laughs> under international yeah. um, humanitarian law. And any argument that tries to justify that, which is what an argument uh, along the lines of what you just described about the voting um, would, would seemingly be, is also illegitimate. So you cannot you. target, you cannot deliberately target civilians. That's a, a very clear prohibition that it's, it, there's no, there are no exceptions. To the okay. deliberate targeting of civilians. It's fully illegal under international law. In terms of human shield, the human shield yeah. argument. So, right. So Israel uses this argument to try and again, to say that it's, so it it, 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 it argues that it is not, it never deliberately targets civilians. I think there's a lot of reasons to, to, to you know, to, to not think that that's true. Um, and, uh, and, but it says, you know, the reason why a lot of civilians end up dying in our attacks is because while we are targeting military objectives, which we are allowed to do under international law, because these military objectives are embedded in densely populated civilian areas, um, we civilians die. Okay. And it's Hamas's fault that they have located these military objects in these densely populated areas, they are using these civilians as human shields. Okay. But what international law says is, international law says, sure, if, if, uh, if a belligerent, if, a mem- if someone fighting in a war uses human uh, uh, civilians as human shields, that's certainly not permitted. That's certainly illegal. However, that doesn't mean that the other side is then no longer required to take into consideration the incidental loss of civilian life that comes with the targeting of that military object. That other side still needs to weigh the value of that Mm -hmm. military objective against the loss of civilian life. And if it's disproportionate, then Mm -hmm. it is illegal to target that military object. Okay. So Israel's use of the human shield argument does not absolve it of its responsibilities under international law to minimize the loss of civilian life, period. I really want to thank you so much, uh, Professor uh, Mariam Jamshidi, Associate Professor at the University of Colorado Law School. Thank you so much, really. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to go to Jordan and talk to Samar Saeed. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM.
welcome back to True Talk. Uh, I hope you are, uh, I, I don't want to say enjoying listening, uh, but at least enjoying the uh, um, uh, the information that we bring you. But now we go to Jordan and we talk to uh, Samar Saeed, who joins us live from there. And she is a PhD candidate uh, student at uh, Georgetown University, I think. Uh, I hope I'm correct, uh, Samar. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, you're studying what? Hi, Samar. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to your show. So, yes, I am a PhD candidate at Georgetown, and I'm in the history department. And I'm in Jordan actually uh, conducting field work. Okay, what is um, your PhD about? So, I'm actually writing uh, about the history of Jordan and Palestine in the 60s and the 70s. And looking at the resistant, the Palestinian resistant movement and action during that period. I'm not sure how much you're following the news uh, and uh, the show that we just had, but we were talking about uh, trying trying to criminalize uh, students for justice for Palestine in Florida. And you are a student yourself. What do you feel like a student that when um, people don't want Palestinians to wear the kufiya, Palestinians don't want to wear a T-shirt? There was a, a young person who was wearing mm-hmm. a T-shirt that didn't even have anything on it except an olive uh, grove, I think, and an older lady with a basket on her head and the word Palestine. And the uh, steward or the flight attendant asked him to either uh, leave the plane or uh, take it off or wear it upside down. How do you feel like a student who lived a lot, uh, a lot of years in the U.S. and went to very prestigious uh, university and uh, all this is happening? Honestly, Samar, I'm horrified because, uh, as you said, I've spent many years in the U.S. I did my undergrad at George Mason. I did my master's and now my Ph.D. at Georgetown. So I've spent so much time on U.S. campuses and I think the level of in- intimidation and silencing and just the dehumanization of Palestinians that we're witnessing now is unprecedented. I mean, all these claims against SJP for me are, it's just insane for me to think that we're actually debating whether a student club should exercise their protected right to advocate and to educate and to mobilize on campuses. I mean, as someone that you know was part of SJP at George Mason from 2004 until 2009, I mean, I've learned so much being part of the group. I educated so many people about my people and my history. I also learned about other people's struggles, you know, about the history of slavery, about uh, uh, the struggle in South Africa, because you're meeting all these students and you're organizing together and you you kind of share uh, the same values in terms of your activism and what you want to achieve and the messages that you know you want to uh, highlight on different campuses so for me to think that the university is no longer a place where palestinians can talk about palestine where uh, we can't work with other groups uh, on campuses to highlight other struggles uh, things that are you know police brutality in the us what's happening in sudan what's happening on congo if slowly we're going to be you know restricting those spaces then 
you know, how is the U.S. a country that, you know, keeps claiming that it's a country that protects human rights, that it's a country that protects uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech? I mean, in a way, this is unmasking, you know, the reality of the situation on the ground. And I, you know, when things started, when the genocides, uh, Israel's genocide started in Gaza, I was feeling so lucky that I'm in Amman. Because I remember, you know, every time something happened in Palestine and I was in the U.S., I always felt isolated, even though I must say that at Georgetown, there is a beautiful community of professors and students that always come together and we have, you know, a space to speak. So it's not as bad as, you know, the horrific stories that I'm hearing from my friends at other universities across um, the U.S., but you know so you felt uh, you felt safer in amman or you felt more um at home yeah I, a lot safer a lot safer you know i f- i felt that here i was able to you know of course the contexts are very different but then there's this whole idea that people in the us are somehow safer and freer to speak their mind and to talk about you know political uh, topics and clearly what we're seeing now is that the us has turned into a very unsafe, not just for Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims, but really for their allies as well. You know, we've seen many people, even Jewish students are being attacked for, you know, speaking for Palestinian liberation and for even contextualizing and historicizing everything that we've been seeing in the past two months has kind of also been criminal criminalized as if, you can't talk about history anymore, that we need to talk about the history of Palestine from October 7. Mm-hmm. And this is dangerous, you know, because it's in a way it's allowing a precedent to become uh, the norm. And, you know, I was hearing uh, the professor who was, you know, talking uh, before I joined. And uh, I think students are not going to stop talking, you know, I feel there is also this collective power within students. We've Mm -hmm. seen uh, students from different campuses coming in together to actually challenge the administration and challenge people who are, you know, labeling them all sorts of uh, honestly despicable uh, labels. You know, these are students who are just starting um, their political journey a lot of them are you know undergrads who are navigating uh the already challenging academic life so to put them under the spotlight in this way mm-hmm. i think is very very dangerous and i'm worried because it doesn't feel like things are changing um in the right direction you've mentioned the congress yesterday mm-hmm. and honestly just listening to it from jordan I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, the presidents of two universities are literally being interrogated as mm-hmm. if they were criminals. Know, some sort of criminals, absolutely. And what's even more horrifying uh, is that th- both presidents didn't push back uh, with regards to the misinformation that was presented yeah. that, you know, calling for an intifada means that you're calling... Uh, for on killing. killing the Jews. I mean, this is really, really uh, a very dangerous uh, rhetoric to be uh, spreading. 
And I think Indian some, if, if I may uh, interrupt here, yeah. but it because of somebody like me who uh, grew up in five countries in the Arab world, I don't think these people here in the U.S. know how this reflects uh, on the U.S. vis-a-vis uh, -vis the rest of the uh, the world, but in particular the Arab world and third world countries, mm -hmm. and how this can be used as a tool to stifle the conversation in the Arab world and in the universities and everywhere. It's not like the Arab students in, in at universities in the Arab world have that much freedom. But then these people are going to say, hey, if America does that, <laughs> why not us? Um, is this something I mean, that scares you? I mean, as you said, the spaces in, in our universities are limited, but at least we don't claim that we want to promote democracy and freedom of expression around the world. I think people here actually already know how to navigate the censorship and they, it, I mean, it's a very different context, you know, no one here is being demonized for talking about Palestine. Like I'll start here. Okay. I think Jordanians are not, you know, that's also a misrepresentation of uh, the activism in Jordan. We don't stand in solidarity with Palestine. Like Palestine is our struggle and we are part of this struggle. So we talk about it, we organize, we protest. And, you know, like we challenge all the avenues that try to suppress us here. And, you know, there, there are limitations, of course, to how we organize in Jordan. But I think what's happening in the U.S., because there is this idea that people in the U.S. are allowed to say whatever they want and to do whatever they want. But I think a lot of people are coming to the realization that actually the masses across the world are being oppressed in different forms and in mm -hmm. different way. And, you know, the violence, of course, is different from one place to another. But in a way, we've reached a point where we are governed by governments that don't respect human rights, don't respect freedom of expression. And that's not just in the Middle East. Honestly, it's also in the U.S. And it's been very clear now to anyone uh, who's following what's happening in the U.S. And I think for us, we also clearly we people in Jordan follow the news and they mm -hmm. see what's happening on universities. And because a lot of people know that, you know, I'm a student there, I keep getting calls from uh, fathers and mothers who have students in the U.S. They're all horrified. They're all super afraid about what could happen to their kids there. I mean, Yeah, and we have the story of Hisham. Yeah, exactly. Family. Let me just uh, remind our listeners that this is True Talk on WMNF. I'm talking to Samar Saeed, a Jordanian. She's currently in Jordan, but she is a PhD candidate in the history department at Georgetown University, which brings me to, I know what you're going to say, but let me just read the title of a very interesting piece that she wrote, The Shooting of Palestinian Students in U.S., Politicians and the media are to blame for uh, rising anti-Arab racism. And I know you're going to talk about the three students, uh, Tahseen, Kinan, and uh, Hisham, who were shot uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Samar. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but I needed to reintroduce you to our audience. No, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, when I read the news, Honestly, I was horrified because, and then I was listening to the families of these students. And in a way, there's this consensus within the families that sending their kids to the U.S. 
was a safer option from keeping them in the West Bank under Israeli brutal occupation. And Hisham specifically, who was shot and is now paralyzed, his dad didn't want him to go home for Christmas because he was worried that something is going to happen to him in Palestine. And who would have thought that he is going to be shot in Vermont? I mean, so I think this really had shaken a lot of uh, families and people, not just in the Arab world. I think parents in general are now worried that the U.S. is no longer a safe place to send your uh, children to. And, you know, in the article, I argue that part of what's happening is the way the media and U.S. state officials have been talking about Palestinians in this context specifically, but also how they've historically talked about Arabs and uh, the Middle East as a whole. I mean, in the article, I talk about the, the you know, the the rhetoric and the discourse mm -hmm. uh, around the war of Iraq and the invasion of Iraq and how they manufactured the consent to actually invade Iraq and how they were depi depicting Iraqis, you know, as violent people. Um, they were kind of painted to be as the other, the mm -hmm. uncivilized, and we need to go in there to bring them democracy, to save them from dictatorship. And, and if you look at how you know, Palestinians are now being portrayed in the media. These Orientalist tropes are also very visible, you know, the, the way they describe Palestinians, you know, the violence, as if, you know, uh, there's no, as if the place is an irrational, uh, you know, Israel has to do what it's doing. It has the right to defend itself. But Palestinians, no, they have no right to resist. They have no right to history. They have no right to to anything, basically, in, in this whole narrative. And, you know, the hate crime started with the stabbing of Wadia. I mean, Wadia is a kid who was stabbed 26 we have, times. Uh, we have 30 seconds, please, uh, Samar. So, yeah, I think the media has really, uh, and state officials, had taken everything that the Israeli propaganda machine had uh, ushered into the world and just repeated it over and over again without any nuance, without challenging these, yeah. uh, you know, most... Oh, I mean, there's no evidence Sorry. of anything that the yeah. Israeli government Sorry, has Samar, we are running decided. out of time. It's thank okay. you so much. I appreciate you being on True Talk and thank you, our supporters and our listeners without uh, WMNF and without, I guess, uh, being uh, here. You won't be hearing uh, Samar and Mariam. WMNF Tampa, the scoop is